crown him, crown the Lord. What a beautiful anthem. And uh, I want to ask you to be praying for the choir and orchestra. They are busily preparing for our Christmas concerts, and they just have a, a wonderful um, uh, program arranged that really will walk people through the gospel. It will be so beneficial and edifying for believers and so impactful for unbelievers. So please be praying for them. We want to glorify the Lord through the proclamation of his birth. We want believers to be edified and encouraged, and we want unbelievers to come and see what the Lord has done. This is a wonderful opportunity to invite your unsaved friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. It's one of the best opportunities of the year to do that, and so I'd encourage you to be praying also for whom the Lord would have you invite. Grab some concert invite cards and make a personal invitation. You know, most people who come to Christ and come uh, to uh, a place where they can hear the gospel come because someone personally invited them. So make sure to extend a personal invitation to that friend, neighbor, coworker, or relative who needs to hear this good news. Well, this morning we've come to the last message in our nine-part mini-series on the biblical texts from which the elders have derived our mission statement, our core value statement, and our vision statement. And if you recall, at the beginning of this series, I explained what our mission, core values, and vision statements are and, and why they are helpful for us. If you remember, I described it this way. The mission statement describes our spiritual purpose. Core values describe our scriptural priorities. And the vision statement describes our strategic path. Another way of saying that that I mentioned is that our mission statement describes our divine commission, our core values describe our desired character, and our vision statement describes our directional calling. And then I gave even a third kind of description of that, which is that our mission statement describes why we exist, our core values describe who we are, and our vision statement describes where we're headed. So we're going to be talking today about where we're headed, about the future and the pastors and elders' vision for the future of our church. So we finished last week our journey through the seven core values, and now in our final message on this series, we're looking at several biblical passages from which our vision statement is derived. And the vision statement really is a summary of everything that we've been talking about for the past nine weeks. So today is going to be a little bit new and a little bit of review, and um, I hope it will be a blessing to you as we think about the course that we're charting for our future. So let's look at what the elders have written in our vision statement. The vision of Calvary Bible Church is to be a biblically faithful, disciple-making, intergenerational church comprised of people from many nations, which glorifies God through local evangelism, global outreach, loving community, humble prayer, expository preaching, fervent worship, and practical training. Now, there's literally dozens of scriptural passages which teach each component and each phrase of this vision statement, but for sake of time, we're just going to focus on a couple key texts for each one. So let's dive in and begin by looking at the first three phrases of 
that vision statement, which describe what kind of a church we hope to be. When you look at the first three phrases of the statement, you'll see that they describe who we seek to be. Who do we as a church seek to be? Now, as we describe this, there, like every church, we have strengths and weaknesses. Some of these things are already true uh, to us to a large extent, but we need to improve on. Others are more areas of need for improvement. But the question we're asking is, who do we seek to be? As the pastors and elders look into the future, what kind of a church do they envision us being? Who do we want to be in the years and decades and even generations to come? Now, as you go through the elders' answer to that question, you'll see that we are reaffirming the direction which has been true of Calvary since 1929. This is not by any means a new vision, nor is it a new direction. Rather, we in our generation are articulating our commitment to continue on the biblical gospel course this church was founded on. But we also hope that by articulating and reaffirming these things in our generation, that it will help to sharpen the congregation's understanding of that original course, that it will renew our personal commitment to pursuing it, and it will help to ensure that this church stays on that course long into the future and prayerfully until the Lord returns. So when we look at the statement, the first thing that it affirms is that our vision is to be a biblically faithful church a biblically faithful church. Now, this may sound like a no-brainer. After all, our name is Calvary Bible Church. So one would hope that we wanted to be biblically faithful, having called ourselves a Bible church. But it isn't a no-brainer. In fact, there are many tragic examples throughout church history of Churches that began with a commitment to Scripture and then gradually drifted away. And there are many of those tragic examples in modern America all around us. I want you to consider the fact that most major Protestant denominations just one or two generations ago would have wholeheartedly affirmed what we just said, that they too wanted to be biblically faithful. Now many of them have not only abandoned their commitment to Scripture, they've abandoned the gospel itself. What happened? In most cases, they incrementally and gradually drifted from this core commitment. They abandoned their commitment to be faithful to Scripture, and by doing so, they have shipwrecked the faith of millions. The Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It is powerful. It contains the truth which sets men free. And it is the word of the living God. And so the enemy of souls, Satan, seeks to oppose the word of God with all of his might. He does everything in his power to lure individuals and whole congregations and whole denominations away from their confidence or obedience to the Word of God. 
So the danger of being incrementally lured away from our confidence and commitment to the Word of God is a real danger. It's a real danger in every generation, including ours. And so, to remain faithful to this principle, we, like the generations before us, must renew our commitment to the Scriptures. We must heed the warnings and follow the exhortations and be buoyed by the encouragements that are given to us in the Word of God in regard to being faithful to Scripture. I want you to consider, for example, the book of 2 Timothy. In the book of 2 Timothy, there are multiple exhortations and encouragements to be faithful to Scripture. If you remember, 2 Timothy was the Apostle Paul's last letter to his protege, Timothy. He's about to be martyred for his faith. He knows the churches will be left in the hands of the younger generations whom he has discipled. And so he exhorts Timothy repeatedly to be faithful to Scripture. He tells him to be a diligent student of Scripture. He reminds him that Scripture is inspired by God and useful for correction and rebuke and teaching and training in righteousness. And then he says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of the holy angels to preach the Word because there's a time coming when people won't put up with sound doctrine. They'll want to have their ears tickled, but you, he says, fulfill your ministry preach the word. There's one particular uh, passage in 2 Timothy which I think really speaks to the need of the hour for us, and that is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love of which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Two commands, retain and guard. Hold on to the sound words and guard the treasure. This is Paul's dying wish. He's about to pass from this life. What does he want the next generation to do? Retain, hold on to the sound words which you receive from the apostles and guard the treasure of the gospel. I want you to imagine that your grandfather had some sort of precious family heirloom, something that had been passed down generation to generation, and it was exceptionally valuable. It not only was valuable in terms of its monetary value because maybe it's made of gold or jewels, but it also has incredible personal meaning and significance. And that family heirloom was passed down from your grandfather to your father. But imagine that your father sold that family heirloom for 50 cents at a flea market. How would you feel about that? You would be aghast that he didn't retain this treasure. He didn't guard it and he did not pass it on to you. How much more precious is the gospel than any family heirloom? It is the only thing that can save a soul from eternal condemnation. It is the good news which transforms lives. It is a treasure and so we must retain it, and we must guard it, and we must pass it on. 
retained the standard of sound words. And he says, do this in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. We don't do this with some sort of animosity or strictness. We do this with faith and love. Now notice in verse 14, it says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. This is something we can only do through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he indwells us for this purpose. Did you know that one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is to enable us to retain the sound words of sound doctrine and to guard the treasure of the gospel? That is one of his ministries as the one who indwells us and empowers us. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. This is a sacred trust. Retain it and guard it. Practically for us as a church, it means that we must choose our leaders and our teachers very, very carefully. We must choose as pastors and elders, as Bible teachers and leaders, men who have a high view of Scripture and who have a deep commitment to obeying it personally, to preaching and teaching it faithfully. The sad reality is that whole seminaries and denominations and many local churches have deviated from Scripture because, as the Lord warned, men have slipped in unnoticed who didn't hold a high view of Scripture, who maybe signed off on a doctrinal statement saying, I believe in the Bible, but in reality, they redefined all the terms and they do not have a personally deep commitment to the Scriptures. We are warned of that danger, and so as a church, we must retain and we must guard, and that means we must have high standards for those to whom we entrust the next generation of God's lambs. You take care if you're a parent, you don't entrust your children to someone who you don't know is trustworthy. We shouldn't do that in the church either. Sometimes impressive men are destructive men. Find faithful men is what the scripture says. Those who will receive the treasure, guard it, and pass it on to others. This means that as a church, we must maintain and require a resolute doctrinal commitment to the seven components of a sound bibliology which we discussed a few weeks ago. If you remember, we talked about seven key components of a high view of Scripture, of a sound bibliology, and that is inspiration, which simply is the belief that God said it, inerrancy, that what God said is true, preservation, that what God said has not been lost, authority, that what God said is binding both on us personally and as a church, the sufficiency of Scripture, which is that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, the perspicuity of Scripture, that what God said is clear, He's a good communicator, and illumination, that God helps us to understand what He said through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Seven 
core aspects of a sound bibliology. We must hold to them and we, we must require future generations of leaders to hold to these truths. And if we will stay committed to those seven vital truths and really put them into practice in the life of the church, then that is how our goal of being a biblically faithful church into the future will be met. May the Lord help us to stay faithful to his word, no matter how antagonistic to the Bible our culture becomes. My teenagers are in high school, but they're taking some classes at KVCC, and often they are standing, the good news is all three of them are in the same class, but the three of them are often standing alone against adults who are mocking and attacking the scriptures. My prayer for them as a father is that they will retain the standard of sound words, that they will guard the treasure, they won't be ashamed of the gospel, and that they will be a light to those who need to hear it, speaking the truth in love. We need to guard the treasure, and we need to share the treasure of the gospel. We want to be a biblically faithful church. The second thing we want to be is a disciple-making church a disciple-making church. And of course, the key text here is the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We want to be a disciple-making church. And as we discussed in our first message in this series, for almost a century, Calvary Bible Church has been committed to the same mission, which is the Great Commission. And so, if you remember, we derived our mission statement directly from the structure and content of the Great Commission. Our Mission statement reads as follows, Calvary Bible Church exists to multiply disciples who glorify God by going to all peoples, gathering in community, and growing in Christ. And that is derived from the structure and content of the Great Commission. If you remember from that message, the main command of the Great Commission is to make disciples. And so that is the central thought of our mission statement and of our logo. Christ is the center. We are to make disciples for Jesus, disciples of Jesus. But then in the Great Commission, there are three participles which modify that command to make disciples and tell us three things that we need to do in order to be a disciple-making church. We must go to the lost with the gospel. We must then baptize those who believe and gather them into the fellowship and community of the church. And then we must teach them to obey everything Christ commanded so that they will grow. And so our mission is to go gather and grow so that we can be a disciple-making church. So our vision is to be a biblically faithful and disciple-making church. And thirdly, we want to be an intergenerational church, an intergenerational church. 
Now, in saying that we want to be an intergenerational church, we're saying that we reject what is known as the homogenous unit principle. And you're saying, I don't know what the homogenous unit principle is, so I have no idea why we should reject it. Well, let me explain it to you, and then I think you'll see why it must be rejected. The homogenous unit principle was the core idea of what was called the church growth movement, which began in the 1970s. And we now know, decades later, that the church growth movement has produced the exact opposite of what it intended. It purported to produce church growth, but it has actually produced church decline, statistically, numerically, and spiritually. But the homogenous unit principle was the core of this movement. What does the homogenous unit principle say? Well, it points, first of all, to a common sense observation, which is that people like to be with people who are just like them. That part of it is true. People like to be with people just like them. You can take a hundred teenagers who don't know each other, put them in a room, and you will soon find out that the kids who dress alike group together, the kids of the same age will group together, kids who are from different parts of the country will group together. People like to be with people who are just like them. But what people like and what they need are two different things. And the homogenous unit principle confuses what people like with what they need. They are correct when they observe that people like to be with people like them, they are incorrect when they think that doing that is giving people what they need. The church growth movement taught that churches should choose a target demographic. It was a concept borrowed from corporate America and from the media. Churches should choose a target demographic and then tailor the preaching, the music, and everything else to fit the preferences of the target group. So, One church would choose the target audience of 18 to 25-year-olds, and all the preaching is about the issues 18 to 25-year-olds face, and all of the music is the type of music 18 to 25-year-olds like, and the culture and style of the church is all fitted towards that one group. Another church would say, no, we're going to be the traditional church. For us, it's people who are over 55. Their preferences will rule here their music, their preferences, their culture. The terrible result of this way of thinking was that the body of Christ was divided along generational lines. In some churches, the younger folks essentially said to the older folks, we don't need you. And in other churches, it was vice versa. Spoken or unspoken, that was the message. We don't need you. I've even heard, and very directly, this is... um, This was the experience of my father when he was pastoring in California. One day, they were just having a normal church service, and all of a sudden, a hundred people showed up. A hundred new people. You know, it's normal to get a few visitors, you know, now and again, but when an entire group, like, convoyed over to your church, a hundred, you're like, what is going on? And as they began talking, they found out that the week before, these were all people who had attended another church in town for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And the week before, they had a new pastor, and the new pastor had decided that, you know, he wanted to target 18 to 30-year-olds. And so, he started making changes, and the older folks weren't on board with some of those changes, and so he got up in the pulpit and said, if you don't like these changes, leave. We don't need you. In those exact words, 
we don't need you. And so they did. And within a year, that the church couldn't afford that pastor anymore, and so he was out of a job, and my dad's church had a hundred very godly people. <laughs> this is wrong to do things like that. This idea resulted in a division in the body of Christ along generational lines. Some churches became youth churches. You know, some churches have youth groups, other churches are youth groups. And that's not a good thing. It's a good thing to have a youth group, it's not a good thing to be a youth group. Other churches, some churches have a seniors ministry, other churches are a seniors ministry, and again, that's not a good thing. Some churches became youth churches full of energy but devoid of wisdom, while others became traditional churches full of wisdom but devoid of energy. And the overall result was church decline, not church growth. So we reject that approach. We reject the approach of the church growth movement, not only because it has led to church decline, but also because it is directly unbiblical. I want you to listen as I read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just listen to what is written here. Even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. In other words, don't separate yourselves. Don't say, well, you know, I don't, I don't fit in there. You know, like these people, a lot of them wear suits. I don't even own a suit. Hey, come. Come. Just because you're not an eye doesn't mean you're not a part of the body. Come. Then he says in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. See, this is not about what we want. It's about what he wants. And he wants the generations together. Verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. See, we cannot do that. We can't say, I don't need you. The young can't say to the older folks, we don't need you. The older folks can't say to the younger folks, we don't need you. We need each other. Young people, you need the older generations the way your hand needs your arm. What do you think has connected you to Christ the head? You learned the gospel from whom? From the older generation. You need them the way your hand needs your arm. But older folks, you need the younger generations the way your arm needs your hand. How will you reach and grasp hold of the future without them? You cannot. We need each other. So we want to be intergenerational. And for this to take place, Calvary Bible Church must be a place where the older generations are honored and the younger generations are nurtured. 
That is our goal. We want the older generations to be honored and the younger generations to be nurtured. And all of us who are somewhere in the middle, and I've been having a debate on my teenagers which side of this I belong to. I won't, you know, you can venture a guess how they view me, what side of the, you know, this they think I'm on. But those of us who are somewhere in the middle need to be a blessing and receive the blessings of both. We need each other. Now, there's one more idea encapsulated in the term intergenerational that I want to draw your attention to. I want you to notice that we didn't say multi-generational. Multi-generational just means that we have people from all ages in the church. But intergenerational goes a step further. It means that we not only want to have all ages, but that those of different ages should be interacting, ministering, and blessing, and fellowshipping with one another. This is something that we need to strive towards as a church. I think that it's fair to say that we are multi-generational. I think we can grow in being intergenerational. And the reason that we're so committed to being an intergenerational church where the young and the old worship, fellowship, and serve the Lord together and interact with each other is that only an intergenerational church can fulfill some really important biblical commands. Let me uh, just point you to a couple of them. There are many, but think, for example, about Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Listen to the interactions between the different age groups. Titus 2, verse 1. As for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious, malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Here's the different generations, the older women and the younger women and the children, the older men and the younger men, and they are given commands. You can only apply those in one body where the generations are interacting with each other. Or think, for example, of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes to Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witness, witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's four generations of faith Right in that verse, the Apostle Paul passing on the treasure to Timothy, Timothy passing that treasure on to faithful men, those faithful men passing that treasure on to others for generations. Only an intergenerational church can fulfill these commands. So we want to be a biblically faithful, disciple-making, and intergenerational church. Now, after these three phrases which describe who we are seeking to be, the vision statement then moves on to a phrase which describes who we seek to reach. So we're moving from who we seek to be to who we are seeking to reach. And our vision statement answers the question of who we are seeking to reach with the phrase, a church comprised of people from many nations. 
Simply put, we are seeking to reach every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And the Greek term there is ethne. Go and make disciples of all the ethne. Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Revelation 5.9, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We want to be a church comprised of people from many nations. We are committed to the proclamation of the gospel, which is for every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And so we emphasize both local evangelism and global outreach. We emphasize local evangelism because we want to reach all of the many people groups and nationalities that God has brought right here to our neighborhoods in Kalamazoo and we emphasize global outreach because we want to take the gospel to people groups who are far away in other countries. We want our church to be a spiritual home for people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. After the service, my family and I are going to be joining Leon DeHuda, that's our, our Spanish language ministry for their potluck. And if you've never got a chance to fellowship with them, I encourage you to find out when the next potluck is and don't show up today. It might be like, you know, I forgot to say this in the first service. They're probably going to have like 100 people show up. With, you know, you know. <laughs> but find a time and, you know, bring a dish. It's a potluck after all. And, um, but come and just enjoy the fellowship of all of those people that are from multiple different countries, all worshiping the Lord and fellowshipping together. And, and of course, even in our English-speaking uh, ministries, we have people from all kinds of national backgrounds, and for that we praise the Lord. We want our church to be a spiritual home, a spiritual family for people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, because the Lord has purchased for God those people with his own blood. And we get to be a spiritual family for everyone. Well, next we come to what is really the heart, really the center of the vision statement. And this part of the statement describes who we seek to please. We've talked about who we seek to be, who we seek to reach. Now we're going to talk about who we seek to please. Who is it all for? And in the days and years ahead, I believe that every believer in every local church is going to be confronted with a clear, a stark, and a directionally determinative choice. Will we please God or men? Who are we seeking to please, God or men? As our culture becomes more and more pagan in its values, in its mentality, and in its laws, Christians will have to choose between seeking the approval of God and seeking the approval of men. I want you to listen to what Galatians chapter 1, 
says about this. Galatians 1 verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The only origin for grace and peace is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These words were given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we see the triune God saying, grace and peace comes only from me. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. If you don't know the Lord today, I want you to know that Christ gave himself for your sins. He gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And as we'll see in just a moment, that is our heart is to glorify God that to him will be the glory forever. Amen. Now listen to the warning in verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel. But there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? There's the stark contrast. Am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul looks back on his days when he was known as Saul, and he realizes, I was seeking to please men. Now I live to please God. If I were still, he says, seeking to please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. Everyone has a master. Either God or people. Everyone lives to please someone. Is it God or peers? Is it God or the world, the culture, the society around us? James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Don't you know? This is something that is Christianity 101. James says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, he's not talking about being, he's not using the term friendship in terms of being friendly. We're commanded to be friendly and loving towards the unbelieving world. What he's talking about is being an ally of the world. Friendship or an alliance with the world is hostility towards God. Whoever wishes to ally himself with the world makes himself an enemy of God. What is he saying? He's saying this is a fallen world. This is a world which is in rebellion against its creator. This is a world where the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, Satan, is leading a rebellion and many have followed in that rebellion. And there is enmity between them and God, between the fallen world and God, and you cannot be on both sides. This is a fence you cannot straddle. You must be 
an ally of God or you must be an ally of the world. You cannot be both. Imagine if someone in the 1940s said very piously, um, I am an ally of the Jews and I'm an ally of the Nazis. That would make no sense because there was conflict between good and evil. And you cannot be simultaneously on the side of good and of evil. So James warns, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Our vision statement states which side we're on and whose approval we are seeking. It says that we seek to please the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be, as it says, a church which glorifies God. We exist to serve, to please, to worship, and to glorify Him. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. We want to be a church which glorifies God. Think also of what is written in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. At the end of this marvelous prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. We want to be a church which glorifies God. And that really is the center of our vision statement. We want to glorify the Lord. Well, the last section of the vision statement contains our seven core values, which are descriptions of how we intend to pursue our vision. You know, you can have the right destination, but if you take the wrong road, you can get off course. So our destination is glorifying the Lord. Our destination is being biblically faithful, disciple-making, intergenerational, to be a church comprised of people from many nations. We want to glorify the Lord. That's where we're headed. How are we going to get there? And our core values map our course. They tell us how we intend to pursue our vision, how we will implement these things. We intend to, imp to implement our vision and to pursue it through our seven core values, which we've been talking about the last seven weeks. Local evangelism, global outreach, loving community, humble prayer, expository preaching, fervent worship, and practical training. That's how we intend to pursue this vision. So our vision statement really ends in listing our core values with a reminder that we need to be a church which lives up to those core values. If this is just on paper, it does nothing. All it did was cost some money to print it on a banner and put it in the lobby. But if this is our DNA, if this is who we are and who we intend to be, it will have a great effect and we will bear much fruit for the glory of God. So our vision statement ends with that reminder that we need to be a church which lives up to our core values.
We need to really be a loving community. We really need to be committed to local outreach and to prayer and to all of those seven core values. To some, we want to be a church which teaches, believes, and obeys the whole counsel of God. So now when we look at the vision statement as a whole, it says six things about who we seek to be. We want to be a biblically faithful church, a disciple-making church, an intergenerational church, a church comprised of people from many nations, a church which glorifies God, and that's really the central thought, and a church which lives up to our core values. Zach DeYoung has developed a, a logo for this, which is a wonderful teaching tool. It begins with a cross in the middle, which reminds us that we exist and our mission is to glorify God by making disciples. And we do that by going to the lost with the gospel, by gathering in loving community, and by growing in Christ. And when we do that, we will implement our seven core values and be a church which glorifies the Lord by making disciples who go, gather, and grow. There's one last thing I wanted to say as we close, and that's to point out the sermon title in the bulletin. I really struggled with what to call this sermon. But what my heart was drawn to is this. I've entitled it, Our Prayer for Our Future. On December 5th, I'll be doing part two of that message on the Lord's Prayer. Remember the cliffhanger from a few weeks ago? Well, I, I'm coming back to the Lord's Prayer on December 5th. And the Lord's Prayer is going to remind us that apart from Christ, we can do how much? Nothing. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. We have a vision that we can't do. Only Christ can do it. So we must pray. Plans without prayer are proud and presumptuous. A vision for a healthy church which doesn't depend on the victorious head of the church will be in vain. And we must realize that no vision for the future can succeed unless we are on our knees. So I want you to think about this vision statement not as our plan for the future, but as our prayer for the future. This is not a plan, this is a prayer. And I want you to stand now, if you would, and join me in praying that God will do what we cannot do, that he will make this vision come true. Oh Lord, please do a mighty work of grace in us and through us so that we can truly be a biblically faithful, disciple-making, intergenerational church comprised of people from many nations which glorifies you through local evangelism, global outreach, loving community, humble prayer, expository preaching, fervent worship, and practical training. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We can be re